0: Good morning. It's good to see you guys. I really do enjoy getting together with you guys to worship. It's highlight of the week. Um, if you're new at the Crossing Church, or your first time here uh, worshiping with us, we want you to know that uh, this is only a glimpse of who we are, uh, though it is a highlight of the week. We, we gather throughout the week in what we call missional communities to live life on mission, seeing that every day we're the church, and we want to live that out in in the world. And so the hope is that this would be a a time that we come together and we worship a God who's faithful all throughout the week, that we see him active in our lives, showing his grace day by day and uh, knowing that we need his mercies to be renewed every morning, praising him for that, Um, but also a time that we hear the, the word of God proclaimed and we hear truth preached, that we see that the Word of God is valuable in every way. It, it has an ultimate authority to the things of the world, the things that would claim authority in the world. And so we come together uh, to hear it proclaimed, and then we devote ourselves to it every day of the week. And so, uh, like I said, this is only a, a small picture of who the crossing is. And so we want you to engage in relationship with us and be on mission with us to a city that needs to hear the gospel. They need to know the gospel. There needs to be change. Just like there continues to need to be change in us. And so we've decided as a church that we would use the month of January to look at some very specific things. Uh, Not just this January, but January's to come. We will focus first on the Word of God and on prayer. And we've done that the last two sermons. And then the next two would be racial reconciliation and the sanctity of life. That coincide with National Holiday of Martin Luther King Day tomorrow. And... Sanctity of life Day uh, something that's recognized also on the national level and and so we think it's good to take advantage of these rhythms of our culture that they would be thinking on these things anyway but also we see that there's incredible gospel implications for both of these things uh, and it turns out that this has been a time of repentance for us as a church and as individuals when we see that we don't pray like we should pray and as often as we should pray and we don't value prayer like we should but also We have the word of God before us, God giving himself to us in the person of Christ, revealing the story throughout history of our redemption and something that brings life, something that convicts and cuts deep and makes us who we need to be in Christ. And we don't value it like we should. And so we've repented that and we've gone back to that. And I think on a national level, we should grieve uh, the, the division that we see racially in our country and we should repent on behalf of our country knowing that we're aliens to this land, we're citizens of heaven. And then we also need to see the sins of our country as as uh, it concerns sanctity of life. And so we'll do that next week. So if this is your first time ever being here on a Sunday morning, congratulations. We're going to talk about racial reconciliation, which is one of the most intense things we can discuss considering our culture. Now, there's a lot of racial division in our in our culture. I don't think that I need to convince anyone that racism is very much alive and just as divisive as it's always been. When you just look at the news over the past few years, there's literally riots in the streets over racism. And I can confess to you that I have in my life thought racist things and felt racism towards me. Now, I've never wanted to kill someone because of the color of their skin, but I've certainly thought less of them. And that's something I'm ashamed of but confessing to you in hopes that you also will examine your hearts and your lives and your thoughts. And and I, if you don't know, I'm biracial, half black, half white. My whole life I've been that way. Uh, and I know that a lot of people assume one way or the other that I'm Latino or, or Greek or, or Brazilian. I've been asked if I was Brazilian specifically. Are you Brazilian? Actually, it was a Brazilian lady, and she said you're my people. And I was like, no, I don't think I am. (laughs) Anyway, in my life, race has been an interesting thing because I'm half black and half white. And if you know anything about our country, they've not had a good history. And so I've received and felt racism for both races. And it's something I don't talk a lot about. And that's, I think now I see clearly that's sinful to not address these things and and have conversation about these things. And so um, places that I've uh, been employed and and people I've been around have made assumptions or not known and so i've I've been uh, <laughs> I don't know if it's a good thing but I've been able to hear uh, unfiltered racism for from white people who assume that I'm white and from black people who assume that I'm just on their side uh, and and I don't think that everyone's everyone gets to experience that so it's unique in some ways uh, but it's grieving me more and more as I consider the need for the gospel <laughs> to, to change those things in our culture. Uh, and, and maybe you've not noticed, but segregation is still a thing, even though it's illegal. Um, as more black people move into the city, more white people move out. And our school systems have, have made themselves available to, if you, if you feel uncomfortable with your kid going to the school, just pull them out and we'll send them somewhere else. Or there's private schools available uh, for, for people who won't say it's because of racial things, there's other reasons, but is it? are there other reasons, or is it racist? And so we're going to spend some time this morning looking at what Scripture says about both race and reconciliation, and we're going to look at uh, our culture and then hopefully apply some things in a way that will help us. Um, but what I want us all to, to admit straight off is that Sunday morning is incredibly segregated. Martin Luther King said, 11 a.m. on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in the nation. And he said that some 50 years ago, and we've not come very far. And so that should weigh on us. Why is that the case? Why is that true? And I'm aware that Martin Luther King Jr. was not a perfect man. And if, if you don't know the history of this, theologically, he was off on some things and, and very important things. He was doctrinally off. In, in his seminary uh, experience, he was under some liberal teaching. He wrote some papers that, uh, that at the very least, they didn't explicitly affirm the deity of Christ. And that's a huge problem. He, he never affirmed that the virgin birth was literal. He never affirmed the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And that's in seminary. So maybe 10 years later, in the thick of the the civil rights movement, his views had changed. That's possible, but there's no proof of that. And it's also true that he has some moral failures and that he uh, gave into temptation to not be faithful to his wife. We have that historical. We know that's historical. Um, But I want to encourage you this morning to know that uh, celebrating racial reconciliation isn't connected at all to his personal theological views or Uh, His behavior and John Piper, I totally agree with what Pastor John Piper says when he says we don't mark historical days because of personal views or behavior of historic figures, but because of what they stood for publicly and the good that they unleashed in the world. Martin Luther King Jr. Called for freedoms and rights and justice that were long overdue. And he did it with an appeal to historic Christian vision with amazing rhetorical skill without condoning violence, and with unprecedented and lasting success. And that's what we're celebrating. So we have a national holiday tomorrow, not to celebrate a man, but instead what was accomplished, it's humongous for our nation, the laws that were passed that that should have been in place long before. And so we celebrate that. But it's my prayer that God would do something in us as the crossing church. There would be a deep conviction and passion of our church and our people to fight for racial reconciliation that still needs to happen. And that it would be something that takes consistent intentionality and that we know that it's a need and that we address it openly and honestly and that we go after it intentionally in loving relationships, seeing that we should love God more than we love anything that we would prefer, seeing that we should love people more more than we love ourselves. And as Scott pointed out, seeing that God came as a man to save all people. And in seeking racial reconciliation, I think we need to ask an important question. Is it biblical? So is seeking racial reconciliation biblically optional, or is it a mandate by the gospel? Is this something we have to do or can we choose whether or not to do it? And that's important because if it's just optional, it's certainly easier and more comfortable to not pursue it. And although racial reconciliation is not the gospel and it's not even the, the center point of the gospel, I, I think that we can at least say it's a qualitative application of the gospel, both in its function and in its practice, that we see it's, it's come up, it comes about because of the gospel at work in us. Because of our understanding of the gospel, there should be racial reconciliation. And and we're going to walk through some scripture to see that that's a thing. But it's especially true for a land that has such a, a horrifically marked history. And it's marked not just between whites and black, but from the very beginning of this nation, we stole this land from a group of people who lived here and slaughtered them to do so. And... And there was the African slave trade, and there's this continued oppression, uh, and there's this continued tension between whites and blacks in our nation because of things that happened in our past, and it's easier to act like it didn't happen, or just to move on, or say, well, we fixed the problem, but American history has been embarrassingly tainted by this racism, no matter how great of a country it is, and I know it's bigger than white and black, and so today we're going to look at race as a whole, but, but I think... It's safe to focus in on white and black a little more because the truth is that's the majority culture. There's majority is white overwhelmingly, but then the next largest is black, and especially in Monroe, it's basically in this area basically a 50-50 thing. Monroe, Monroe area is about 63% white or black and 30% white, and West Monroe is the opposite. So add them together, divide by two, we got 50-50 yeah. going on. And then there's a a very small percentage of of Asians and Latinos in the area as well. Um, But let's let's look at what Scripture says about race. Um, So biblically and historically in the Bible, God created one race, Adam and Eve, the human race. Maybe you've heard of it. There's one race, biblically. God created them. They're our ancestors. We all come from Adam and Eve. However, Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. They, they saw the one rule. They broke the one rule. And they, with their hearts, said, I want to be God instead of I want to be like God. I'm creating His image. I see that He's given me good things. God created man and said this is very good. But in their hearts, they wanted something more. And the same is true of us. We continue to want things more. And so sin has continued to grow. Jealousy and envy and pride and arrogance has become a, devi- a divisive thing in our relationships with one another and between us and God. It grew to a point where God destroyed the, the earth in a flood or the, the people of the earth in the flood except for this one family, Noah and his family. So we all can trace our lineage back to Noah and his family. Still one race. And then the Tower of Babel was built. Maybe you know the story. The people began continued in their sin. They began to want something more. They said, I, I want to I get to God. I want to be there with Him. So they built this tower in their pride and boasted in how awesome their craftsmanship was and how they could do anything they wanted and God, a sovereign God in control of all things graciously and lovingly confused their language and, and they separated and they became the nations that we know today in these different races and, and nationalities. And, and it was divided out and, and it was no mistake. It was totally under God's control. Many nations were created and God chose one nation Israel, to be his people. The promise made to Abraham, he would, he would deliver them. He would win back his people. It was always a part of the plan. God, rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, has always had a plan. Though we were dead in our sin, has always had a plan to, to bring about salvation. And he does so in Jesus. And so with Jesus, we learn in 1 Peter 2, 9, because of Jesus, there is a chosen race, a holy nation. The redeemed and everybody else. So now the one race, human race, has become two races. The chosen race, the, the redeemed, and everybody else. And that's set. Like There is a certain amount of people that God has chosen. And there's a, there's a people who aren't chosen. That's, that's true biblically. I don't see how you can argue anything else. Even if you believe you choose God. That, that, that isn't, that's not what I'm saying. Even if you believe you can choose God, you are part of this chosen race. And so now we have these two races and in Revelation chapter 5, the the Apostle John sees this vision of heaven. What will one day come? What will be in heaven? And he sees that there's this scroll and it's symbolic, so we're not going to go into symbolism, but there's a scroll that can't be opened except for Jesus shows up and he opens the scroll and all those gathered around begin to sing in Revelation 5. Verse 9, it says, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So though there's one chosen race, they're from every tribe and every nation. So picture this this tapestry of different ethnicities. This word nation is, is the Greek word ethnos. It's it's where we get in ethnicity. So there's this chosen, holy ethnicity that God has. But it's made up of a tapestry, a, a mosaic, this this transcultural worship. It's this, all these pieces together. Like, look at this wall behind me. Different shades of boards, different shapes, different sizes, different markings, but making up one beautiful wall. And I put it together, so I'm talking about my own artwork. But that is the picture we're talking about here. All nations chosen by God as this A, singular, A, unified, holy, eternal ethnicity worshiping Jesus forever. So if you don't like the idea of a diverse church, if you don't like the idea of of racial harmony within the church, then heaven's going to be very awkward for you. You're going to be uncomfortable. If it's uncomfortable here, we'll be free from sin, so that'll be helpful. But this is what we're talking about. Why would we not be after that if we see that this is heaven? Why would we not be after that? Why would we not take the intentional steps necessary to go after this? I think the answer is because it's easier not to. It's more comfortable not to. But then the question is, what are we worshiping? Is it our preference and our comforts that we're worshiping? I just want to be honest about this. And if that's the case is it racist and we also see in the great commission Jesus says to us and we cherish this verse so we, we talk about the great commission a lot here because we see ourselves as missionaries he says go and make disciples of all nations same word go make disciples of all ethnic groups so nations biblically nations aren't these the borders it's not talking about this block of land. The nations are the people. So so we're fortunate in America to, to have many ethnic groups in our country. So go overseas, certainly. Reach all people with the gospel. But see that we have this opportunity here to reach all ethnic groups. To make disciples of all ethnic groups. So that covers race biblically. Let's look at reconciliation I put together a biblical definition, I think, of racial reconciliation or of reconciliation as the establishing of peace in relationship where there had previously been hostile division and alienation. This includes the removal of offenses that cause the disturbance of peace and harmony and the development of a new identity in Christ. Some references, Romans chapter 5, verse 10, 2 Corinthians 5, 19, and Ephesians 2, 16, all speak of reconciliation. And this is speaking of reconciliation between man and God. So Jesus has accomplished this reconciliation between man and God. But it also has very strong implications of the reconciliation we need between man and man. Because the same thing, sin, has affected the relationship. So, if this is true, that we could be reconciled to God despite our sins, certainly we could be reconciled to one another despite our sins in the past. We see it in relationships within families. We see it in relationships within the church. And we need to see it in relationships between races, between different ethnic groups. In Acts chapter 10, you don't have to turn there, but you can turn to Galatians 2 because we'll be there in a minute. In Acts chapter 10, uh, we see that God gives Peter this vision of, of uh, okay, okay, it's a weird vision, but this thing comes down and there's all kinds of things you're not allowed to eat in it according to the Jewish laws, and God says, you can eat it. And Peter, having made mistakes in the past, like you know, saying the wrong thing at the wrong time, and, and Jesus telling him he's Satan, that's he's a little bit shy this time. He's like, I'm not eating that. What are you talking about, God? I'm gonna eat that just in case. It's a test. But God says, no, I've made it. You can eat it. And So he, he translates it. He understands this vision to mean something more than you can eat this food. And it, he says in, in chapter 10 of, of Acts, uh, he says, God show, has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So he's seen that it's not about the food. It's about people. Truly, I understand. He says, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So Peter sees everyone's a sinner. Everyone deserves condemnation. But God has graciously extended salvation to all people. And so then he goes and he brings the gospel to a Gentile man who who already fears God, but doesn't know how to receive salvation. And and he he gets it. and, And then there's some... Some difficulties between the Jews because they're like, I thought it was just for us. We're the chosen race. And Peter goes on to explain uh, what God has shown him. But it seems like Peter did forget. He said, truly, I understand. But it seems like he did forget at least briefly in Galatians chapter 2. And the Apostle Paul hears of some things and he addresses it. In verse 11 of chapter 2 in Galatians, it says, But when Cephas came to Antioch, Cephas is another name for Peter, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? So what's going on here is Peter, while everybody's away, while the Jews aren't there, he's hanging out with the Gentiles because he knows he's free to do so. He's he's enjoying life with them. He's eating bacon-wrapped shrimp and he's partying and enjoying their customs and their culture because he's no longer condemned for doing so. But then the Judaizers come around, those who would hold you to the law, and in Galatia especially, Paul's writing this letter to them because there's these people saying you have to, if you're a Gentile, you have to obey the Jewish customs and then you can be saved. He's addressing this directly, and so he uses this an example of what Peter was doing, and he says it's not in step with the truth of the gospel. I want to highlight that out of all of this. It's not in step with the truth of the gospel that you would, knowing this isn't true, Make the Gentiles believe they have to obey these Jewish customs, that you would pull yourself away so much so that those who trust your leadership would do so as well. And so you can read this and you can you can interpret it to mean, well, he was getting in trouble for breaking the Jewish laws when he says, why would you live like a Jew and 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 then like a Gentile otherwise? But Paul instead is addressing the opposite. He's saying, look. You know that you shouldn't be making them feel condemned for what they believe in. It's very much connected to racial things here. You know you shouldn't be making them feel like they aren't included because of their race. But you're doing it anyway because you fear the circumcision party. So when confronted by Paul, he doesn't say, you kind of seem racist. He doesn't say, you really should stop breaking the rules we have against racism. He instead says you're not in step with the truth of the gospel. The gospel has called you out of this way of thinking and living and acting. He's, it says their conduct is not in step with the truth of the gospel. It's important that we see that because our behaviors, our attitudes, our decisions, our thinking have to be in step with the truth of the gospel. Paul's asking Peter the same question that we ask each other all the time. What about the gospel are you not believing? Why are your actions not in step with the gospel? Because it should compel you to live in truth of the gospel. And so we know that that our actions follow our beliefs and and our, our actions should be in step with what is true, and it draws out the implications of the gospel in a way that says, No, you are a chosen race. You are a holy nation. You're not who you used to be. You're something new, and together we become something new together. And we live by grace and conformity to the truth, and not according to our preference, and not in obligation to our fears. Timothy Keller says, in reference to this very thing, he says, racial prejudice is wrong because it's the denial of the very principle of grace. It is a form of self-righteousness, a way to feel acceptable and worthwhile on our own merit. One of the most common self-justifying systems is to convince ourselves of the superiority of our own race or ethnicity. This happens when we attach moral significance to things that are only a matter of cultural preference. The gospel radically undermines all of this. So in the name of our preference, we would say we're not racist. It's just we prefer things this way. We would drift to doing what's most comfortable instead of going against the grain and being a little uncomfortable to pursue something we know is true. And I've heard people say, I've heard godly men say, I've heard men who, who believe the Bible like I believe the Bible. Say things like, well, there, it's okay for there to be black churches and white churches and Latino churches and, and Asian churches. Because everyone is most comfortable in those environments. As long as they're reaching the lost, as long as they're, they're doing, they're growing in numbers, then what's wrong with that? Which seems like a, a good question. Lost people are getting saved. What's wrong with the white people going and doing their white thing and the black people doing their black thing as long as both are worshiping Jesus and everybody's happy? Well, what's wrong with that is it's sinful. It's unity around the wrong things. It's not unity in Christ. It doesn't look like heaven. Yes, it would be easier and, and a whole lot easier on the pastor and it would be so much so much more comfortable and people would be happier if we just allowed everyone to sleep around and smoke weed. Right? That's what they think in Colorado. <laughs> but yeah, but that's explicitly sinful, right? Scripture says don't, don't commit adultery, don't fornicate. It doesn't say you have to be in relationships with people of another, another race, except for it does. It's more clear, that's more clear in Scripture than don't smoke weed is. Why is it that it's so easy for us to accept these things that are, it's definitely wrong? Don't get drunk. We're not going to get drunk. But it's so clear in Scripture that we should be diverse, not just racially. We should be diverse, but we, we justify this conformity to what's comfortable instead. And, and it's convicting for me. And I hope that it's convicting for you. And as we seek to bring more and more lost people, long lost brothers and sisters into the community of God, into the kingdom of God, I hope that it's diverse. I hope that it looks diverse because not only is that more like heaven, not only do I think Scripture explicitly calls us to do so, but also it's what's best for us. Oftentimes what's least comfortable is what's best for us. And I learned this lesson in marriage very clearly because Amelia and I are very different. We're diverse in many ways. We think the opposite on almost everything. But it's been so good for me. Like I know without a doubt I'm a better man today because I'm married to that woman. God has used her to sanctify me in ways that I could not be sanctified any other way. And it's because of the differences. It's because we rub each other the wrong way that we're made sharper and we're made better. It's uncomfortable to have different races and different cultures in the same room sometimes. But it's what's best for us that we could work through our differences that we could we could be a picture to the outside world of what heaven's going to be look like or going to look like but also we could be a picture to the outside world in the midst of racial tension and division in our nation we gather and we worship the same god we gather and we worship jesus for the reconciliation he has provided us with god and with diversity we praise him instead of Uniting around secondary commonalities. We unite around Christ. We cling to Christ instead of to our preference. We cling and cherish Christ and value Him above all else. And that's the picture of the church. Everything else, the food we eat, the music we like, the decor of our homes, how we dress, how we speak, the temperature of the room, the color of our skin, all of that's secondary. And it's sinful to make those things primary so we don't see racial harmony if we don't see racial harmony in the crossing church so i think we need to ask the question is it because we're racist and racism is a scary thing and racist is a harsh term and so let's let's scale it back some and let's soften it if we can and and let's understand it's not just i hate you because of your skin color that it, it's i feel that i'm better in some way because I'm, I'm, I think my way of doing life, I think but maybe it's not the color of the skin. Maybe it's just culture. I think my way of doing things and seeing things is better. Is that true of us? And that's not just with race. The civil rights movement was an incredible occurrence in American history and I'm very grateful for it. My life would be much more difficult had it not happened. But it only changed the law. It's not done anything to change hearts. And And... Political correctness has scared people into making sure they say the right things in the right way so they don't lose their job. But it's not changed hearts. Only Jesus, only the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ can change our hearts. And so we need to, we need to run to Him. We need to repent of our sins. We need to examine our hearts and find the racist things in there and, and pull them out and see that there's something more, there's something better for us. And, and so let's ask tough questions. And if if someone were to ask us individually, are you racist? I would guess most most of us would say, no, I'm not racist. I love black people. I love Mexican people. I love Asian people. That's what we would say. But is it true? And what does it mean to love? Because if we look at Peter in in Galatians 2, I think he loves people still. But why, why did he not want to be seen with the Gentiles? It says because he was afraid. And so we can think he's afraid to be associated with them. He didn't want them to think, oh, he's with the Gentiles. It, it could be that. And, and that's not true of me. I'm not afraid if I associate with another race that you're going to think I like them. I'm not afraid of that. So what, is, what could it be that we're afraid of? Maybe Peter was instead afraid of the confrontation. He was afraid of having to explain himself. Maybe he started to doubt what he knew was true because he didn't want to have to address it. And that certainly can be true of us. We don't want to deal with the awkwardness. We don't want to deal with the confrontation. We don't want to have to deal with all the the tension and the drama that's going to come with this because it's going to be difficult. But we, we know from Scripture that love casts out fear. That we shouldn't be afraid. So let's be challenged with this thought that racism at its root is is just sin. But more than that, I think it's a fear and a resistance to sanctification. We don't talk about it enough. Sanctification is uncomfortable. Sanctification is not something that we should enjoy, but it's something that benefits us. It's hard. Sanctification looks like suffering. It looks like sacrificing what we like. There will have to be sacrifice in order for there to be racial reconciliation and racial harmony in, in the crossing church. Are we seeing that as a good thing for us, even if it's not a good thing? Naturally, we drift towards homogeny and it's, it's going to always be that way. Naturally, we, it's the path of least resistance. We, we go downstream because we're just floating along. It's going to take effort to fight against this. It's going to take effort to go upstream, and I think it's it's necessary, and I think it's the best thing for us. So diversity must be sought after, or it's not going to happen. And some of us have prayed for diversity, specifically uh, within the church for racial diversity, and some of us have never considered this concept before. But together, you're being made aware. Together, the ignorance is gone. So even if racism is not founded on hatred. Often it's founded on ignorance. We just don't understand. We don't know. And so, so we have to talk about tough things. And if, if you're white and looking out, I see some white people out there. If you're white, the truth is you don't understand what it means to be a minority race. It's just the truth. And the feeling is vice versa. They don't understand what it means to be white. Or we don't understand what it means to be white. I'm like the ultimate minority. If you if you look, say just take a step back, forget about your race if you can for a second, you realize it's not a it's not a mind thing, it's a heart thing, racism is. It's not a mind thing. So if we can engage the mind to the point that it will drop down into our hearts and we consider our hearts in this. And saying some honest things that may sting or may be taken the wrong way, if you find yourself in awkward situations, because a, a biracial couple walks in you don't know if you should look at them and because it's a beautiful thing. Maybe I shouldn't look at them because I think I'm being racist. But if I don't look at them and don't make eye contact, they'll think I'm being racist. And you feel stuck. There's no option here. That's true, right? That, that's how we feel sometimes, right? That's how I feel. I don't know if you guys feel it. But being honest, white privilege is a real thing. It's not some made up thing by the minority. It's a real thing, but it's simple. Okay, it's not. It shouldn't make you feel weird. It's simple. You don't feel guilty about it. If you feel guilty for being white, that's not believing the gospel as well. White privilege is a real thing because white, Anglo-American, is the majority race. So society has been built to favor the majority. That's common. That's, that's a normal thing for society to favor the majority. So that's what white privilege is. It's just... It's not, just, it's not just you get a job because you're white. So maybe some of those things are starting to dissipate. Some people think we've come a long way. Some people think we haven't. Either way, there's still a long way to go. So white privilege is, is simply that the American culture has been designed for the success of the majority. Because the majority rules. Even if we have a black president, it doesn't change it. The minority has to work much harder and it's... It's much more difficult to survive and to thrive in a nation built for the majority. That's all it's saying, okay? So with that understanding, we consider things like how we view other races and how we get annoyed because they won't shut up. about It's oh, not fair. If we're honest. And so you should never act like you understand Another race, In the same way that men don't understand women, women don't understand men, children don't understand what it's like to be an adult. There's this perspective that we just can't have because we don't live in, in those shoes. But you absolutely should try to understand. And so there's, it's going to call for awkward situations. It's going to call for making mistakes and sounding racist when you don't mean to sound racist. You absolutely should stop saying things like, you're the whitest black person I know. You absolutely should stop saying things like, he's so articulate. That's racist. Because what you're saying is, wow, I didn't expect him to speak like a proper human being because he's black. That's racist. It might sound soft and gentle, but it's not. It's racist when you, when you think to yourself or you say things that that come out as the differences between us, I'm better there's differences between us and I'm better it's racist to think everyone needs to think like you talk like you dress like you live where you live if it's concerning race it's prejudice okay it's basing something on the way someone looks and that's just it's true but don't don't hear me saying there's not sin on both sides because there absolutely is first Corinthians 1 22 and 23 says for For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jew, folly to the Gentile. So what what this is saying is, look, both sides of the the situation are seeing seeing it wrongly. Both sides are seeking the wrong thing. We preach Christ. And we come together under Christ. We unify under Christ. We put aside the differences. We see that there's wrong on both sides. When, when there's national uh, riots in the streets because of race issues, we should not start saying things too soon. There is a time to say things. It needs to be said, but sometimes you need to wait. Sometimes you need to be gentle. Sometimes you need to be understanding. As soon as a, a black man is shot by a white cop is not the right time to say anything about race. We grieve the loss of, of a person who died. Maybe it's racially charged. Maybe it's racially connected. But it's the same as like a, a mom who just lost her child. I'm not going to go over to her house and say, well, if you would have just set up the house in a safer way, if you would have put little outlet covers over all your, your outlets, then your kid wouldn't have electrocuted himself. That's not the right time to say that. Yes, there needs to be safety in the house, but it's the wrong time to address it. So there's things that need to be said in this conversation, but we need to be patient, we need to be understanding, we need to go at it the right way, we need to be gentle and considerate, we need to understand that it's gonna be hard. And at no point are we gonna be perfect in this, but it's certainly something we should pursue. And it's not that it's not that either side is right and wrong, it's that we need to find what's right together. And it's gonna be difficult. And so I don't think that we at the crossing have a willful hatred of other races, but looking around the room, it's apparent that we are at least ignorant of some things and we need to more intentionally pursue diversity. And, and step one, I think, is educating ourselves. Listen to some sermons. Uh, get some books to read. Befriend people of other races. Go out of your way to get to know people. Ask questions. It's not... It's not a problem to sit down with somebody and ask and just be honest like, hey, look, I don't understand how or why I'm in the place I'm in, thinking the way I'm thinking. I don't want to be racist. I want to better understand. I'm going to make mistakes along the way. I'm going to say things wrong, but I want you to help me understand. I don't know of any any black person I know that wouldn't do that for a white friend. I mean, there's definitely those out there, but I don't know of any if you honestly went to them and confessed some sin and said, I don't want to be this person, help me. And it needs to happen the other way too because there's a lot of, there's a lot of stereotypes for white people. They're just, they're just not as common because the white people are a majority. And there will come a time in our nation where the white population is not majority. Predictions right now are by 2042. Anglo, that's non-Hispanic white people, will no longer be the majority. They'll still have the largest group, but they, it's some like 46% right now. It's like 70%. Because of, the, because of the regulations on the borders and things like that, they're letting a lot, of, a lot of other nationalities and ethnicities into the country and things are changing. White people are having less kids also and other races are having more. And so with that, saying that, examine your heart. How do you feel about that? Did you feel weird? Like, oh no, what do we do about it? I want to close out by reading um, a section of what's become known as a letter from a Birmingham jail. It was written by Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, April 11th and ni- April, April 11th, 1963. Uh, Martin Luther King, along with some other uh, other people in the civil rights movement, were in Birmingham, Alabama. And they were trying to make the decision of whether or not they would march and whether or not they would demonstrate a peaceful protest uh, against the laws that were prevalent in in that city. Um, Only the problem was there was an issue because the sheriff served Dr. King with a paper, a, a state court injunction that said he wasn't allowed to do any demonstrations in the city of Birmingham. And so he was faced with this decision to make, do we do it anyway? And with his kids and his wife in Atlanta safe from the current situation, he, he and his friends decided to go ahead and do it. With about 50 volunteers, they marched knowing they were going to go to jail for breaking the law. And they approached a line of police officers. They were all loaded up, put in jail. And while in jail, uh, a few days later, April 16th, he received a copy of the Birmingham News, which contained letters from eight Christian and Jewish clergymen in Alabama, all of them white, criticizing King for his demonstration, criticizing him, saying he was impatient, saying he was an extremist. He should have just waited. He should have just abided by the law. There was other opportunities. And so, sitting in his jail cell, he wrote a response on whatever he had there on the edges of the newspaper, on toilet paper. There's, they say different things. It's been documented now, and it's called Letter from Birmingham Jail. And it's long. It's several pages. I've just taken three sections that I want to read to us this morning. And in doing so, I want us together to grieve for the sins of our nation. I want us together not to celebrate Martin Luther King, not to celebrate racial reconciliation, but to celebrate the gospel, to celebrate unity we have in Christ that we would come together and walk in step with the gospel, seeing the things that flow from that like racial reconciliation. And so this letter, uh, if you love Jesus and if you love people, is not easy to hear. But I want us to hear these words and feel the emotion behind them. In response to the claims that he was being impatient, he wrote. Perhaps it's easy for those who never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. But when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your black brothers and sisters, when you see the vast majority of your twenty million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she cannot go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on the television, and see tears welling up in her eyes when she's told that Fun Town is closed to colored children and you see this ominous cloud of inferiority begin to form in her little mental sky as she sees her as she sees her beginning to distort as she, as you see beginning to distort in her personality developing of the unconscious bitterness towards white people When you have to concoct an answer for your five-year-old son who is asking daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you take a cross-country drive and you find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will let you in? when you are humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs that say white and colored, when you are harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro, living constantly at tiptoe stance, never quite knowing what to expect next, and are plagued with inner fears and outer resentments, when you are forever fighting the degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait." There comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over and men are no longer willing to be plunged into the abyss of despair. I hope, sirs, that you can understand our legitimate and unavoidable impatience. In response to their claims that he was an extremist, he writes, Was not Jesus an extremist for love? Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to them who hate you, and pray for them who despitefully use you and persecute you. Was not Amos an extremist for justice? Let justice roll down like waters of righteousness, like an ever-flowing stream. Was not Paul an extremist for Christian gospel? I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus." Was not Martin Luther an extremist? Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise, so help me God. Was not John Bunyan an extremist? I will, I will stay in jail to the end of my days before I make a botry of my conscience. And Abraham Lincoln, thus this nation cannot survive half slave and half free. And Thomas Jefferson, with these truths... With these truths to be self-evident that all men were created equal. So the question is not whether we will be extremist, but what kind of extremist will we be? Will we be extremists for hate or for love? And finally, as he addresses the church, as he addresses us, he writes, There was a time when the church was very powerful. And the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being Deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded ideas and principles of a popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. But the judgment of God is upon the church today as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalties of millions, and be dismissed as irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 21st century. At the time, 20th century, I changed it to represent us because unfortunately, it's still true. Because we have, instead of being a thermostat that says this is what's true, adjust to it. We have complicitly gone with the preference of the people. Like a a thermometer that gauges the temperature and adjusts. Such amazing words and such little change. It's my prayer that we never give in to this. That we never stop fighting against this that we would would be willing to sacrifice every secondary thing in order to hold to unity in Christ alone. And I I pray that we would actively fight racial division not as some social movement, not just for social justice, but for the sake of seeing the gospel lived out, to see gospel renewal in Monroe. That's what it's going to look like. And we have to go at it intentionally. It can't be once a year we do a sermon on it we have to be aware of it. And if you're in the majority, you have to be more aware of it. And so let us give ourselves to Jesus. Let us see Him do a work in us that would change us in a way that we see it lived out in things like racial unity, racial harmony. And let us praise Him for being a God who's brought about reconciliation so that we can know our Father. And then we could see we've been made one Race chosen and holy, set apart by God to live this out in the world and to worship Him forever. And don't leave here today guilty and ashamed. Leave here today rejoicing that for us we have an opportunity to repent and find freedom from our sin. And this isn't true of us. The racism, the sinful things about us, it's not true of us. Instead, what's true is that we can walk out lives in truth of the gospel because of Jesus. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for Jesus. I thank you that you have opened our eyes to truth in the word of God, that you have revealed in our hearts sin that doesn't belong. And I pray that we would repent, that we would seek freedom in the gospel like Never before, in ways that we would see the implications of it lived out, in ways like racial reconciliation, but in other ways, God, let us see the gospel in our lives. Let us see your grace in our lives, and let us praise you for sending men that would speak out what is true. Praise you for your word that tells us what is true, enable us to live by it with intentionality, with sacrifice. Aware of the discomfort that may come, but willing to endure it for your glory and for the joy that is eternity with you. In Jesus' name, amen.